0: Well, hopefully some of you all had the the privilege of having a day off this week with Martin Luther King uh, celebration. And sometimes you don't even know why you get the day off. You're just glad you get it. Uh, And so sometimes you don't so much go back and celebrate and remember and reflect on uh, a person and what they did. But as we know the story of Martin Luther King and the movement that he led, and, and just really to emphasize that all great movements that have ever been in history, and you prove me wrong on this, but all great movements start with a man who saw something, who believed something, who felt something, who was disturbed by something, who, who awakened him out of his slumber and apathy and life as it was. But it was, on, it was on August 28th in 1963, whenever he stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and proclaimed before 250,000 people a speech that to this day is still studied. And to this day is still looked at as a as a keynote inspirational moment in time. When when Martin Luther King, it didn't begin on that day. It wasn't as he stood up there and all of a sudden there's two hundred and fifty thousand people and he just begins to speak. But it was a vision, it was a dream, it was a passion that was being birthed inside of his soul. That on that day, that became the the kind of the flagship moment for. The Civil Rights Movement, that was the flagship moment that started something that to this day is still filling the ripples of what was started on that day in Washington, D.C. that has been, again, tried to be compared, emulated, tried to be reproduced in so many different ways. But there's several things when you go into that speech and you, you break the speech apart word by word, phrase by phrase. There's two words that kind of just pop. It's the word dream. It's the word freedom. Dream. Freedom. Eleven different times he uses the word dream. Ten different times he uses the word freedom. Now you could just, by that alone, and knowing what little know you know of history about Martin Luther King, you know that there's something of a dream and you know there's something to deal with freedom. That he had a dream for freedom. He had a dream for a different world, for a free world, both black and white, both, both races and genders and religions and all would have the, the freedom. Here's one of the statements uh, that is proclaimed on that day in the Lincoln Memorial. He said, from every state and every city, we would be able to speed up that day when all God's children, black men, white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing the words of the old Negro spiritual." free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. You think about that, I mean, that's one of those times I can remember watching the speech in the old real to reel movie form in, 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 in class, in school, in elementary school, and watching it and studying it, and then again later on in literature class in, in high school. It's one of those that you just can't put down. But what was it about that? There was something about a man. Again, in a, in a day and age in America where black men didn't have a whole lot of a voice, a man could stand on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and cast a vision, and the entire nation, in time, begin to rally around this. Yeah, did it cost? It was there bloodshed. Was there was there fighting? Oh, absolutely, we know that from our, our, just our, our, our brief study of history. But the thing is, it didn't stop a man who saw what could happen, fueled by a by the passion that it should happen, that didn't stop him. And it was Andy Stanley, as we we quoted last week in his book, Visioneering, he kind of gives us a very succinct statement of what a vision is. A vision is a clear and mental picture of what could be fueled by the passion and the conviction that it should be. It's not just something that would be nice, it's something that it must I'm willing to give my life. I'm willing to stake my future. I'm willing to put my reputation on the line. I'm willing to put my savings account on the line. I'm willing to put anything that I have on the line because it must, it should. And this is this is not something again new with humanity. This is something that is not just human. It is divine. When you think about when you think about our Savior, when you think about our Father, and how our Father looks down into. Into, into time, into in, in, out of space, and, and he comes and he looks at mankind and he sees how we've jacked things up, we messed things up, how we've lived for ourselves. And now he could have looked at that and said, "Oh well, pity them. I'll just start all over over here." But he didn't. He saw something that could be done and should be done, fueled by this passion that it should be done enough. So much so that He would sacrifice, send His one and only Son. Can you imagine? Again, a vision is something that could and something that's fueled by a passion and a conviction that it should be done. And you don't back away from it. We started a study last week, if you weren't with us, in the book of Nehemiah. So by be finding the book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament. Back there about two-thirds of the way through the Old Testament, you'll find Nehemiah in the historical section of the Old Testament. And you'll find Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a man that I I don't want to paint a picture for you that he was looking for some form of self-promotion. He had it made. He was living high. He was living, and up up until that point, uh, for about 140 years, Israel had been under the domination of either Babylon, who was mean and ruthless. But God showed him mercy, it's sad to say, but even though they were still in exile... When, when Persia came into power. Persia was a little bit more gracious. Persia was modern-day Iran. And as you think about modern-day Iran and you got modern-day Iraq being Babylon, to this day you see those two nations fighting and warring with each other. But as these, as these, these nations are dominating uh, the people of Israel, you might think again that Nehemiah is suffering in the squalors of, uh, of exile and slavery, but he's not. He's serving the king. He's serving in the king's courts. He's serving with the king as a cupbearer to the king, watching over the private stock of the wine cabinet of the king. Not only watching over it, but tasting every drop of wine that would touch the lips of the king, he would first be the one to taste it. He was a taste tester. He was a safety. He was a point of prevention. Therefore, he had to be a trusted individual. With all of that obviously came the perks of living among the king's people, the king's palace. I mean, God just does these things when He raises up people all along in time, whether it's a Martin Luther King or it's a Nehemiah, or it's a Joseph in the in the nation of, uh, of Israel whenever they're under Pharaoh's rule, or it's Daniel whenever he's under the rule of Babylon and he is actually speaking into the to the ears of Nebuchadnezzar. God just raises up these people along the way. And I wonder in this day, in this time, in northwest Arkansas, maybe it's going to be huge, maybe it's not going to be that big. But God is beginning to awaken some of us in this room of something that could, fueled by a passion and conviction that it should, that is going to move us off dead center and move us forward that may take us out of our comfort zones. It may take us out of our security because that's exactly what happens to Nehemiah. And we'll see in the weeks ahead that Nehemiah trades the palace for a shovel and a pick and a sword. He, he trades his glasses of wine for glasses of water. He, he trades it all in. He leads the, the palace of the Persian king to go and serve on the, on the broken down, burnt out walls of Jerusalem. Now, how does a person go from here to there of their own choosing? If you're forced into it, that's one thing. But if you go there on your own choice, how is it unless there is something deeper inside of them calling them to this? Calling them to a deeper walk, to, to something greater. We talked about this last week in just kind of part one of the message and the fact that this is a, this is a process that, that God takes us through. That birthing of a vision that happens inside of us. The dream, the bubbling up of this this passion that that wells up inside of you. We talked about, we spent all last week just talking about the first trimester, if you will, of what it means to be in that birthing process of a vision. When God births that vision inside of us, it's conceived through a burden. You see something, you taste something, you hear something, you, you, you find something out that just disturbs you. And again, if you have Nehemiah open now in chapter 1, verse 1, he, he asks his brother one question, how are things back home? How are things back home? And from that, his brother goes on into the, into the dialogue of things are bad, things are not good, people are suffering, it's, there's injustice in the land. It's, just, it's not good. And from that one brief, succinct statement, everything in Nehemiah's life begins to quake, begins to be put into a disequilibrium, begins to be, be, be disturbed. And, and you see what happens. In, 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 in verse 4, it says, in, yeah, verse 4 of chapter 1 it says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down, I wept. And mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying. This is what happened inside of him. First of all, he 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 couldn't serve the wine anymore. He couldn't serve the, the, the food anymore. It was not about that. It was all of a sudden. It was about what he just heard. And he sat down. There's something that happens inside of us whenever a burden is is there. Is it stops us in our tracks? We can't just go on. Can't just be business as usual anymore. Nehemiah moved from success to significance in a matter of one question and one answer. It was a career change. It was a it was a vocational altering change that happened. It was beautiful, but it was disturbing all in all in the same. And then, and then you, you go you go on and you find that he sat down, but he also he sat down, and he he wept and he mourned for days. For days was something that gripped him deep inside. It emotionally grabbed him. The burden touches your emotions is what we learned last week. It touches your emotions. It disturbs you. It awakens you. It, 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 it doesn't leave you the same. He began to weep. He began to mourn the people back home for what was going on in his motherland, what was going on with his family. And friends, let me say this to you. When you... Feel, see, taste, smell, experience a disturbing moment in your life. When you encounter that, don't let the first thing you do is that you reach for ibuprofen, or you you reach for some medication, or you reach for something that will dull the pain and put you to sleep and erase it from your memories. When you see something that disturbs you to the core, lean in, sit down, begin to mourn and weep. I'll let it affect you. And then do exactly what, what Nehemiah does because the burden challenged him to his spirit. And he began to pray. Prayer becomes a, well, I don't, I don't know if it becomes or it just continues because one of the things that we're going to see about Nehemiah as this was a man of prayer. But you see here in that verse 4, he says, He was praying before God of heaven. He just began to see God in prayer. And so as we talk about these terms of a vision, these first term being it's conceived in a burden. Typically it interrupts your life. Typically it messes you up. It messes up your calendar. It messes up your agenda. It messes up your goals and objectives. It messes things up. It's messy. All right? When that burden is in you can't sleep, can't move on, can't just go on. so when it begins to mess with you, okay, stay there for a while. But then you don't want to just stay in the first term. you want to move to the next, that gestation formation kind of a period. And, 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 and this is what happens in the second term. A vision is formed through prayer. A vision is formed through prayer. I say it again, a vision or maybe God's vision, is formed through prayer. This is where you, you, you now allow the burden to, to interrupt you, and it's in you, and you're, you're thinking, okay, what could be done, and what should be done, and, and, and okay, what could be, and what should be, and it's just it's there, it's just rolling over in your mind, and your heart, and your soul. And then it moves you into another question of, of, of prayer, and saying, God, where are you in this? God, what's what's this about? And God, how, you know, where is this going? And how can I? And and what are you going to do about this, God? Kind of questions start coming in, and that's prayer. We start allowing that vision to begin to take formation. And you, you've all had, well, not, not everybody, but many of us have had babies, and and not myself particularly, but my wife has, and uh, and so you go through that that process, and you. I love seeing how that little bitty fetus uh, it becomes just forms and shapes and becomes and becomes and becomes. Uh, you know, it just is so beautiful to watch that process. Well, think about a vision much like that. At first, all it looks like is a little pea. But that pea is a person. It's real. It's It's alive. And it becomes and it continues to become. It continues to take shape and take on likeness of one or the other or both. It continues to become. That's what happens in prayer. And the problem is, and I have to be very frank with myself and with others, that so few of us take our burdens to prayer and ask God the question, now what? You see, you see the response sometimes to the burdens, are, are, are we become watchers of the burden. You know, you just, you just watch, oh my, can you believe that? We start wanting to blame political parties. We start wanting to blame the, uh, uh, the neighbors. We start wanting to blame the church. We want, we want to blame the city. We, want, we, just, we just sit there and we just scratch our heads and we go, this just isn't right. And this couldn't, this is, something's got to be done about this. And, and we just pound hard and we get disturbed and then we go on. Not a lot comes out of a watcher. They're, they're, they, they become the critiquer. They, they, they look, they observe, they, they know something needs to be done, but they just wait long enough and the feeling will go away. But then there's the then there's the fixers. The fixers are the doers. They're the ones who like when they see a problem, they fix a problem. I, I am a fixer. You bring, I don't care who you are in this room, you bring me your problem and I'll fix it for you today. Free charge. All right. Now I may not know a thing about your problem and I may be absolutely wrong with my diagnosis and my solution, but I will fix your problem. I will give you one of the solutions to your problem. And again, it may fail so I, I let you hold on to your own, your own decisions. But I don't like problems. You know, Lori comes to me with a problem and sometimes she just wants me to listen. But no, I'm a fixer. Don't bring me a problem unless you can fix it. Okay, and that's just how we have to learn to function together is that I need to shut up sometimes and just listen. But If you're a fixer, you don't like problems. And sometimes the problem with a fixer is that they will run roughshod into the problem with their man-made solutions, and though they may be good, though they may work, and though they may ultimately be where God wants it to be, at the end of the day, you left out one element. What does God want? Are, Are you supposed to fix the world's problems? Are we supposed to... America, are we supposed to police the world? You know, really? Think about it. Where do do we come into as the fixer? I want to create a word here. Then there's the prayers, all right? I don't think it's a word, so I'm going to create it today. These are the ones that enter into a problem. They see the problem. They're, they're, They're troubled by the problem, but they can't... They're disciplined enough, and this is where I struggle... They're disciplined enough not to just go roughshod into fixing the problem. They're disciplined enough to stop, drop, and pray. Now they're willing on the back side of that prayer to get up and to be a fixer. They're willing to get on the back on the back side of that and to have some solutions. And they may even while they're praying come up with several solutions. But the problem, the the opportunity is, is they may come up with a, a lot better solutions the longer they spend in prayer. The longer time that they think it through, work it through, pray it through. I said this a lot during our Envision campaign, and it's still so true. A leader can do more than pray, but he can't do more until he prays. You know, it's not just you pray and then, all oh, God's going to fix all the problems in the world is that I pray and in my prayer I'm anticipating and I'm listening that if God burdened me with this, then I'm probably a part of the solution and I'm just going to have to wait for God to show me how I'm a part of this solution and how I fit into His equation. Nine different times in the book of Nehemiah, we find Nehemiah praying. Don't skip over Here's a man. Here's a man who works for the king. Here's a man who has influence, power, and wealth. Here's a man who, who, who doesn't need to pray because he works for King Artaxerxes. I mean, King Artaxerxes has been, been solidly on the throne for 15 to 20 years. So who needs to talk to the man upstairs when you got the man in front of you? Not Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man of prayer nine different times in these chapters. He is We find him on his knees praying. In fact, the very last words of Nehemiah, you read it, he's asking God for favor into the future. We find in chapter 1, Nehemiah praying. In fact, the bulk of chapter 1 is the prayer of Nehemiah. So you find bookend in the book of Nehemiah. You find him praying in the beginning, you find him praying in the end, and you find him praying in the middle. There's something about this man and there's something about prayer that even though he's a leader and even though he has influence and even though he has fame and fortune, even though he has all of that, he is still a person dependent upon God Almighty. And even when he sees a burden, and every when he sees a problem, and even when he sees an opportunity, he doesn't run roughshod into it, neither does he sit down and critique it. He drops to his knees and begins to pray about it and seek God in it. How do I see this? You, again, take your Bibles and just look at chapter 1. I want to just show you a couple of things that probably you would have skipped over any other day of the week. But chapter 1, verse 1, it talks about it happened in the month of Chislev. This is whenever he talked to his brother, all right? This is when he talked to his brother and his brother... He asked the brother the question. A chislev was anywhere between the end of November or the first of December. We don't really exactly know, depending on the, the moon and the calendar of the, Jewish, uh, of the Jewish people. But here it is that it's in this month that, that, that he begins to be burdened and he begins to pray November, December. Now, we're not going to go there today. We're going to go there next week. But in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the month of Nysen chapter 2, verse 1, it says that in the month of Nicene, then he talks to the king. I don't miss this. In the birth of a vision, a birth that begins with a a burden of disturbing, a, a shaking, a rattling of our soul, a pressure on our soul. But then it moves to prayer. And from the month of Chislev to the month of Nicene, which is about April, for about five or six months, Nehemiah doesn't talk to the king. He talks to the king of kings. Before you talk to men about God, it's always good to talk to God about men. Before you go into this world and try to solve the world's problems, it's good to talk to the one who can fix the world's problems. And that's exactly, and we cannot miss this, part of the vision birthing process inside of us. In the world, you'll go read any book on vision. They're not going to include one chapter on you need to go pray and seek the divine creator above. But let me tell you this. Great men of God could do great things for God, Nehemiah. You could be you. Do it because they included God in the vision formation process. What is God? Burdening you with what is God disturbing you to the core with that He's moving, He's shaping, and He's forming inside of you a deep, disturbing work of God. Now, here, let's 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 look at the prayer, because the prayer is really kind of broken up into two sections. There's really kind of two prayers. Now, there's one that includes about five verse five to verse nine. And then the prayer kind of ends, and it goes to another prayer. There's kind of there's two phrases there, and you can see where it's broken up, because it says, let your ear be attentive, in verse 6. And then he says it again, let your ear be attentive, in verse 11. Scholars believe that these are two different prayers, probably prayed at the same time. But let's begin reading in verse uh, verse 5 and following. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those... Who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive. Now, after all that praise, he comes now, he brings his petition, he brings his prayer to the to the throne room. He says, Let your ear be attentive, and your, your eyes be open, and hear the prayer of your servant. That I now pray before you, day and night, for the people of Israel, your servant, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my Father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to to make my name dwell there. They are the servants of the people whom you have redeemed, the great power and by your strong hand. And then he goes in and he says, O Lord, Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and he prays on into the into the next prayer, and he says this: Your servant, who delights in fear of your name, give to your servant today. Give to your servant today, or give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I just want to break down real quickly a process that if it's 5 or 6 months listen if it's 5 or 6 months or 5 or 6 years or if it's 5 or 6 days i don't know how long it will be but however god long he allows you to stay in that mode of prayer as that vision is being shaped and formed inside of you how can you best learn from Nehemiah's prayer on how to prepare yourself for the vision that God is shaping inside of you. There's a couple of things that I think we can, we can learn from bubbles up from Nehemiah's prayer here. One is I think we need to learn to have a very close life in our relationship with God. If God is some distant foreign God, if God is some some being out there, if God's the big man upstairs, if God is somebody you turn to and only in times of crises, I, I don't know that that's what we're talking about here. Because when you read Nehemiah's words here, you don't read him from, a, from the angle that he is some distant, far-off God. Alright? Listen to these words again. Verse, verse uh, 5. He said, O Lord of heaven, He is the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant and steadfast love, love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. You know one thing that just permeates through there, this awesome God, this loving God who loves those who love Him in this love relationship? It, it, it goes, it, it's exactly what Blackaby talks about in his book, Experiencing God. It's one of the first principles that we've got to get down and wrestle with, and that is the fact that we are invited into a love relationship with God Almighty. God wants to be in a love relationship with you. He's not some far-off, distant, mean God that you only turn to in times of crisis. If He's not in a love relationship with you, if you're not in a love relationship with Him, then I really wonder how far your prayers are going to go. I really wonder how much of His vision will be formed in you versus your vision formed in you. And so I have a question for you. When you look at your life, would you call it close would you call it crowded? Would you call it cluttered? When you talk about a relationship with God. Close would mean that you're like Paul. I mean, you're like Nehemiah here. You're, you're talking about love. You're talking about how great he is. You're in this love relationship with him. That's a close relationship. A crowded relationship. So, yeah, he's in, my, he's in my pool of influence. I listen to his voice along with other voices. Yeah, I love, I love Jesus every Sunday. I come here, don't I? That shows it. I even throw a a few dollars in the plate when it comes by. I mean, I love Jesus. As then we turn and walk out of here and we listen to so many other voices. Crowded. Crowded. Cluttered. You couldn't find Jesus. If you had to, if you had all the bright lights, you'd want to have a clap on, clap off Jesus. I can't find you, Jesus. Where are you at? Oh, there you are. Okay, thank you, Jesus. Because life is so cluttered. You know, is, is life cluttered and you can't find Jesus in your life? Is it crowded and yeah, He's in there, but you know, you got other voices around. Or is it His voice that comes through so crystal clear? See, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. If you can't distinguish the voice of God, then I wonder how crowded or cluttered your life may be. See, whenever Nehemiah came to God, he spoke with him as if he was best friends. Is he that for you? Have you lost the wonder of him? D.L. Moody, a great evangelist, probably greater than Billy Graham uh, in his day, and he was asked one time, how did you keep going how did, at the end of his life? How did you keep preaching? He just says, I never lost the wonder. I never lost the wonder. I'm afraid myself as a pastor, myself as being in the book every week, I, I can lose the wonder. Or I can I can continue to feed the wonder. How close are you? Have you lost the wonder in your marriage? You know what it's like to be twenty twenty 20 years married, 21 50 years married, and you can lose the wonder. Or you talk and you see a couple that's madly passionate love 25 years into this. They never lose the wonder of their spouse. Have you lost the wonder in your relationship with God? How close is your life? Because Nehemiah speaks of a close life. Also, he speaks of a clean life. Close and clean. Not a lot of baggage. In fact, what he does after 141 years of being in exile, the people of Israel, he starts going to the God. And, and As we read there in, in those verses, he says, Now I pray before you night and day, the people of Israel and the servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you, even I and my fathers have sinned. Verse 6. It says, I've sinned, my fathers have sinned, the people of Israel have sinned. I'm bringing them to you. I don't have time to fully develop this. But it would do us really good diligence in our faith formation if we would take the time to go backward before we would go forward. If we would go back and look into our life, generations back if need be, and look for generational sins that have manifested themselves, that we've just passed on to the next generation. We just think that's the way you're supposed to operate. That's just the way you do business. That's just the way you treat your wife. That's just the way you live with a spouse. That's just the way you raise your children. And we don't even realize of our own upbringing, the, the, the baggage that we bring along. And for 141 years... They're in exile, either Babylon or Syrian exile. And and, and they're just clueless. And it was Nehemiah who went back and said, nah, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And we're going to have to get straight again. We're off course. And that's why you see divorce happening from generation to generation. That's why you see integrity issues from generation to generation. That's why you see burnout from generation generation to generation. That's why you see these issues and they're just... Repeated generational sins that go on and on and on. Number three, not only a close life, a clean life, but a centered life. He, he prayed for a centered life. And don't miss this because after being 141 years under the control of Babylon and Persia, he, he comes and he realizes as, as a nation that they've been off course but he, he realizes that he needs to get back on course. Well, where's the course <laughs> after 141 years? Where's the course? We're going to have to find something that is impartial, impartial, reliable, and good. I want you to hang on to those words. We need to find a source, if you're off course, a source that is impartial, that is reliable, and that is good. And if we can find that, then maybe we can find our true north again. Maybe we can find some direction in, in our life. And what you find here is five different times in these verses. Five, count them. He uses the word or derivative of the word command. Commands, command, commandments. Five different times in his prayer. He says it again and again. You see it in verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you and have, kept, have not kept... The commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded. And remember the word of the Lord that you commanded your servant Moses. Verse 9, but if you return to me and keep my commandments. And back over in, in the very first part of that, that prayer, verse 5, he talks about keep his commandments. Again and again and again, he brings us back to this commandment thing. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like being told what to do. I'm just this is kind of my bent. You know, if you in fact, if you tell me this, I'm probably going to think about how can I do it like this, you know, and get get the same results, but or or whatever, you know. I, I just I don't like being told what to do. I I think that's a part of the human nature. I think it's really a part of the American culture. When you start talking about commandments. You've got to do this, you got to do that. That's what People leave God because of that. We don't realize. We have got to find something impartial, reliable, and something that is good to guide us by. When you look at Nehemiah and his whole revival that is happening in his own heart, he realizes he knows what's good and what is reliable. He knows what is impartial. You just jot this verse down. You can put it in your margin if you want to, but in Nehemiah 9, 12, we'll get there in time. But he said this, he says, You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them impartial ordinances, reliable instructions, good decrees, and commandments. God God has given us the instructions we need. He's given us a path. He's given us a true north. But I wonder, are we centered? I want to be close. I don't want to be cluttered. I I don't want that. I want to be... I want to be close you want to be clean you want to be centered centered on his ordinances because they are impartial. centered on, on, on his instructions they're reliable. centered on his his commandments and his decrees, they're good they're good. You can bite down on them, and they will will give you what you want and need in life. You you think about it. There are 7,464 promises in this book. 7,464 promises in this book. The problem is is we can't get Christians to open this book, to dive into this book, to process this book. So what's the problem? I I heard a fable one time of a man who died and went to heaven. he got there, St. Peter was taking him around, showing him all the places of heaven, all the beauty of heaven. And they went down one street and there was this huge warehouse, a Walmart distribution size. He said, what is that? I said, I can't tell you about that. In fact, they even have big fences up, big no trespassing sign. You don't want to go there. You know, this doesn't sound like heaven to me. You're holding out on me. You're hiding something back from me. He said, what are you talking about? And he pressed Peter a little bit further. And Peter said, finally, okay, you you see all those activity, all those forklifts, all those things going on over there at that warehouse? He says, those are the promises of people who lived that they were never claimed. God had plans for their life. God had a vision and a dream for their life. God had a direction for their life, but they chose their own direction over His direction." And if you look more carefully right now, the ones that they're moving in are your missed opportunities from God. Live close. Live clean. Take the five, six months, six years, whatever it is that God, before He He gives you that vision that He's birthing inside of you, take that time and get yourself close. Get yourself clean. Get yourself centered. One last term we don't want to miss. First term, vision is birth. It's vision. It's it's a, it's a difficult birthing. It's a burden that comes out, but it's also. But it, but it takes form, it takes shape, it takes dimension in prayer. The vision is delivered through action. See, we had the watchers, and we had the we had the doers or the fixtures, and we had the prayers. The prayers, the, those those don't necessarily mean they don't do anything. It's that they just wait to do something until God is giving them direction. Then once God has given them direction, they're up on their feet and they're ready to go. They're a part of the solution. They're a part of the answers. In verse 11, again, I want to take you back there to that second prayer in this single prayer of Nehemiah. It says, "Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your... Of your servants. So there's a multitude of people playing. Who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy and strength. The sight. Mercy in the sight of this man. As he's getting ready to go to King Artaxerxes, he's saying, God, please, please, don't don't, don't, don't let up. God, you're up to something here. Please, give us success he had in his mind, in his heart, in his soul, he was a part of the solution. It wasn't just the burden that somebody else had to fix. It was a burden that he got to be a part of. But he had to take time to pray. And once his life was close, clean, and centered, then he was ready to move. God gave, he was ready to say, God, give us success. I'm going before King Artaxerxes. I don't know if he'll kill me for treason. I don't know if he'll just deny me. I don't know if he will demote me. I don't know what will happen, but I just know that without you, I've got, I've got to be involved. I've got to do this. See, God's vision plus my involvement can result in God's success. But if I don't allow myself to be a part of the solution, God will have to find someone else or it won't get done. It won't get done. When Lori and I were a couple of years into our marriage, we, we, uh we got the great news that 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 Jordan was to be born. Now, at this time in our in our life, we had our life plan. We're like most 20-year-olds, we had everything figured out and we knew all the answers to all life questions. Uh, and so at this point, we knew that she was she was a teacher. She was a teacher in a in a Memphis City uh, juvenile center uh, school and and uh, it was uh, it was an amazing ministry in the midst of being her job and and I was uh, I worked at, at Sams, all right? I was uh, I was a I was one of the Sam's people, Uh, not in the official office. I was just at Sam's, okay? I was the hourly. I was the grunt guy. I was the guy who pushed the carts. And I was in seminary. But I had three years of seminary left, and uh, I I thought, okay, we can do this for three years. Then we'll talk about a family. Well, okay, surprise baby. And uh, now we're going to talk about a baby now. All right. So, okay, what are we going to do? Well, okay, we're going to stay the course. Lori's all stay the course. I'm stay the course. She's going to continue to teach. I'm going to continue to be in seminary and continue to work part time. Baby comes, and then you get these big, chubby cheeks staring at you. And my 19-year-old today uh, looked like that then. And uh, as she gets ready after her maternity leave to go back to work. It was one of those things that it was very hard. in fact, she was born in October by the first of November. We're like, "I don't know about this." Our plans were beginning to be shaken a little bit because we knew that that we needed to do this or you know but 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 we needed we had this so what are we gonna do and um so we take her back to. To, to daycare, and we drop her off in daycare. and, But in that pro- time, God has been dealing with me big time. That, you know, I'm not one of those that if, if a woman wants to stay home, fine. Great, stay home. I'm not saying they have to. But for us at that time in our life, it was one of those things that God was speaking to our hearts that Lori needed to be able to stay home. But now, now hold it, God, you've also called us to seminary. You've also called us to prepare for ministry. If I drop out of seminary, I'm probably not going to be standing on this stage this morning. And so, you know, you got us going here and you got us going there. And we're, we're, what's, what's going on here? This was 1st of November. We start praying. We pray. We pray. We pray. And our, our, our order with God was pretty tall. Okay. God, I still want to go to seminary full time. I want to graduate within my lifetime. All right. So I want to go full time. Uh, two is, uh, Lori wants to be able to stay home. Three is I've got to have to have a full time job. Full time seminary, full time job, full time mom. And th- that's it, God. You know, you, you can do that, you can you can do that, and we just prayed about it. We had a job opportunity, we had a church opportunity in northern Mississippi, not far out of Memphis, gonna be a great opportunity. We go to this church, we prayed about it. This church, no. This is not what God's plan was. But God, it's full time. Everything it meets, our, it meets our criteria. Let us go there, God. This is the end of December. I mean, it's perfect. And it was no. So we prayed. We kept praying. That's all we could do is pray. Oh, we could have done other things. We could have just dropped the ball. We could, I could have dropped out of seminary. She could have done this. and it, it could have been so many other things. We could have just done this knee-jerk reaction. We knew that God was in this. We didn't know exactly how. Just a long story short, in March of that year, God ended up opening up a door to a church in northeast Arkansas that we pastored for four or five years. And it was a beautiful experience. They allowed me to go to school full-time. I was paid full-time. Or he stayed home. It was a beautiful scenario. Not everybody turns out like that. But I'll tell you this. God's big. And He's got a big plan for you. He's got a big vision for you. Let Him disturb you. Let Him rock your world a little bit. Maybe you just need to take time to pray about it. I don't know. Just be open to know God in a big-time way. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us and that you didn't just put us in this world and set us to create our own messes and disasters. But, Lord, you saw something that could and should be done, and you sent your son, Jesus. And we just thank you for that, Jesus. We just pray that, Lord, now we understand. What a vision means is a vision means something in our life, something that will mess us up, something that will disturb us. Lord, help us to be open to what you want to do in us. And help us to just pray if we need to pray right now. But help us to, to be ready to stand up and be a part of the solution when the praying is over. Lord, teach us now how big you are and how small our world is. We pray in Jesus'